Hello, and welcome to my very first podcast. Um, my name is uh, Chris, and uh, I've been a software engineer for many years. And this podcast is for me to talk about a bunch of different topics um, related to technical, as well as just different aspects of being a software engineer, how to modernize a team, how to effectively, you know, uh, balance uh, different aspects of just the overall profession of uh, being a modern software engineer. Uh, so this very first podcast's topic is going to be on agile software development. Now, agile is something that I bet most of you have heard of and a fair amount of you are probably in practice now. Um, it is a great methodology. I've had great success with um, incorporating different aspects into my job. However, I have noticed throughout the course of adapting to being an agile team, uh, there's a lot of problems related to agile that just never get talked about. I feel like you see a lot of the success stories about how much improvement Agile is going to do and how much it modernizes your team and how it's great for everybody. But a lot of it has a lot of different assumptions that aren't really looked at or thought about when a team makes the transition into Agile. One of those first assumptions is Agile is really built around a team of peers. Um, that everybody's kind of on the same level. You know, if you assign tasks to everybody on the team, you know, they're interchangeable and really everybody kind of is a full stack developer where they can perform any of these tasks. And what my experience has taught me is that that's just not realistic to have a viewpoint. I mean, you may be able to get that kind of a setup if you're custom making a team for like a startup company and you've handpicked every single person um, to kind of fill that role. But that's just not practical in most companies. Most companies, what you have for your agile team is you have one person that's, you know, the more senior person, the one that knows the most, has the most domain experience and is kind of the one that, you know, leads the team. Um, then you have, you know, a couple of maybe more mid-tier engineers into there, a few young people, um, and all of them have a mesh of different experiences and a different level set that they are bringing to the table. It's good to have this diverse team because I feel like, you know, the younger people tend to contribute a lot more to the modern technologies. They know a lot more because they've been in school, in a profession that just changes radically over the course of the time. And, you know, the more senior people, they have the experience of the things that just aren't taught in engineering school these days. Um, so that's a great balanced team. But when you're talking agile, how do you assign, you know, the same story to a younger developer that's never written a unit test before versus, you know, a more senior person that's been writing tests all their life. It's just fundamentally not the same across the board for there um, with those kind of assumptions. Um, the other big thing for Agile is, again, it kind of really assumes that everybody is a full stack developer. And again, that's just never the case. You know, specialties in our profession exist for a reason. Like me, myself, I am personally a back-end developer um, as well as a uh, talented software architect. I can create designs like nobody's business. I can debug. I can write web services better than most. However, I am just absolutely terrible at UI development. 
um, whether it be, you know, more Java FX style or whether it be web development, it does not matter. I am just terrible at doing it. I don't like doing it. Um, and I just don't produce as good of a product when that happens. So when I've been on agile teams, it's like the front end work, we have front end specialists. And it's really one of those things that incorporating in specialists into Agile just hasn't ever been uh, well done, specifically into Scrum. I mean, there are Agile techniques out there where they start to try to do this with concepts of like spanning palette, uh, but they really just don't do a good job of doing that because of what they identify in who makes up that spanning palette. So really this kind of discrepancy between having these very narrow engineers um, that fit to this mold to get the, the most achievement out of what you hear touted about Agile um, has been my experience. But again, this is something that I've never heard talked about. What you hear about is, oh, Agile makes your team so much more productive. Here's the you know proven statistics about how much more productive your team is and how wonderful it is. Um, but again, in reality, it has its place. And again, it's more of a, it's a great methodology for being adaptive. Its whole point is being an adaptive meant methodology. Which also brings me to another point that I get frustrated whenever I hear anybody talk agile. Um, and I, I call these people, they're agile purists. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, there's well documented when it comes to what they want you to do for scrum. And it's like all of these different conditions exist to be the proper scrum team. You know, you have to have a scrum master. You have to have a product owner that's, you know, these full time people, you know, everybody else is, you know, a teammate part of it. You're story pointing. You're doing this estimating. You have this team where you're keeping the same people over this long period of time to create a, a velocity, you know, estimation and getting better and better at being able to provide um, information to, um, and a, a pro productive agile team. In reality, again, one, I've never had a team that has stuck together more than a couple of years like the people transition, you know, there's other projects that come along. So maintaining a static team just doesn't exist in the real world. Um, and two, it's the people that, you know, have these, these kind of purist mentalities, what they're arguing in reality is that, well, in order to get all of the benefits, you have to be doing all of these different things in this ideal situation, or else you're not going to get what they claim as the biggest successes for agile and to get the full like what they claim sure you may have to do that but what a lot of them don't realize in their purist mentality is every team is different every team has their own way that will work and a different situation and that's one of the great things about that style is it's designed to be agile so why would you ever want to be a purist about a methodology that is intended to be flexible and agile. So really, a lot of teams 
rather than focusing on what does the methodology say and how do I become this, you know, perfect agile team in order to get these grand benefits should really be more focused on finding what of agile makes sense for your individual team and adapting it and taking really more the agile manifesto type um, practices rather than what is documented as far as like Scrum or Kanban or any of these more, you know, detailed processes and really just stick with it as a philosophy for doing development. I think you find if you do that, your team starts to become better and better um, throughout the course of this. And, you know, you start to grow as a team and you start to get better. Um, and then you can tackle things like, you know, the ever-changing teams and all of these different aspects that really throw, you know, more of the purest sense of Agile into a loop. Let's also talk about, you know, the scalability of Agile. Um, now, there's an entire practice out there, again, called SAFE. And I'm, you know, trained and certified in SAFE. I've been on SAFE teams. And... Really, the thing about Agile is it just does not scale well. Like, the safe people, again, they, they may argue to the contrary for me, but in all of my practices, when you try to scale Agile up, it just does not work effectively because there's too many moving parts. There's too many people that need to provide into that from a system perspective, and it just doesn't work as effectively, especially if you're talking about cross-pollinated teams and different companies that I are the situations that I've seen um, and work with. It's It just does not work across the board in order to try and manage those for any kind of a complicated system. Um, and so a lot of people would argue, oh, well, then it's just not a good philosophy to practice as a result when you're building a big system. And that's really not the case either. Um, the biggest problem is, again, everybody, when they think about Agile and these big systems, they're still trying to do the old school system engineering effort in order to be able to make someone understand the whole system. And that's just not practical in these systems. You know, you can do that in the old water file method of, you know, figuring everything out to the nth detail. And then it takes you five years to build a system that really doesn't meet the customer's needs anymore. And you crank out, you know, this big, huge design that has to go through all these iterations in order to be able to try and handle that. And that's really not where you see the industry going, but it's where these kind of more agile pieces try to fit in. In reality, what works better is having the teams that are the skilled teams coming in at the higher level that are determining practices. And this really comes to, you know, for Agile, they talk about having a uh, evolving system architecture. And what I've also found in my experience is most system architects don't know how to do this principle at all. Um, I've seen it in my current Agile uh, team that the solution architects just don't know how to build a system that way. And really, it's it's a hard practice for a lot of people to kind of have more of that evolving mentality when you come into it. But what you'll find is rather than trying to control everything at that high level and do kind of the more enterprise safe structure across the board, 
What's more effective is coming out with a series of ever-evolving standards and rules. Now, you know, there's different arguments about what are good standards, what are bad standards. And when I say standards, you know, I could care less about any of the team's details. Like when people hear standards, they're like, oh, well, you're saying that every single team out there needs to have, you know, a similar um, coding standard like no, that is not at all what I'm saying when I'm saying different standards. What I'm saying, there's certain architectural implementations that you can say, hey, if you want to play in our domain and you want to be a contributor, here's what you have to meet. For example, um, one of the key ones that I like to implement is I say that if you're providing a domain model object, that domain model object should be ID'd with a GUID, period. There is no exceptions to that rule. If you want to be a model object in the system, you have to provide a GUID to identify that um, model object. And what that does is that enables some of these more cross-cutting capabilities. That's what an engineering level complicated system is trying to provide, but keeps failing to do because they don't have those kind of requirements. What they really focus on is trying to implement requirements such as what they call team swapping. And that's kind of what SAFE is trying to do as well, is implement these standards where, ooh, everybody has to follow the same coding standards so that I could hand this off to another team or somebody else could come in and be perfectly transitioned so that we're you know having all of this nit noise stuff uh, be dealt with. And that just never is practical because everybody, again, every team likes different things. A lot of them might like different languages. I mean, and you see a lot of the more modern architectures starting to move towards this, like microservices is a perfect example architecture where it's starting to move towards independent teams. And really the larger system is a conglomeration of these smaller pieces in order to make a more complicated system. But again, one of the things that architecture fails to do a lot of is again, having these cross cutting, you know, kind of system level pieces to help address that. And so having that kind of a team where you have the agile team that's focused on that, I find is much more productive than trying to coordinate everything into the safe structure and trying to, you know, have this ever-expanding agile monstrosity that's trying to be flexible but also rigid at the same time. Another big thing on agile that I always get frustrated with is to do with training. I mean, I have now gone through seven different agile transitions. Only one time was I ever really provided actual training to do agile. And it's, it's a premise of the think of, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll train a couple of people and they'll, they'll self-train everybody else and we'll, we'll propagate this knowledge and it's an easy thing because really the companies, they don't like when it comes to training budgets and understanding the fact that everybody on the team has to be trained about something new. They're like, no, we, we can propagate it this way. Even the best companies, I find, yeah, they'll bring in a short-term agile consultant again to train a few people. 
And that just has never been practical um, in means. When you're adapting to a brand new philosophy, you need to train everybody. Everybody should get that particular training. You should have everybody that's filling the roles that are the key roles like Scrum Master and Product Owner be certified in order to be those roles. And anything short of that, it's like you're not doing your own team justice. And I, I always find it funny in these companies. It's like they look at the price tag of doing these trainings and they're like, oh, my gosh, these things are so expensive, you know, and most of them, again, to get the training course and sign up for it. It's probably a couple couple hundred dollars. Let, let's say, you know, that's um, uh, the test itself. You know, I think you can do a web series on being a scrum master. And, you know, the test is like 250 the last time I saw it. What they always forget to do is they forget to factor in the effectiveness over time. Because let's face it, the most expensive thing in doing engineering is an engineer's time. So $500 here to say that your team is going to be, you know, 10% more productive over the course of its, you know, lifetime. And I'm, I'm not even arguing the numbers are that low. I think it's way higher that your team getting properly trained is actually going to be way more productive than just 10%. But even still that, think of 10% of a team of 10 people. And again, I'm using whole numbers here. Um, and let's say they each make $100,000. You know, you're starting to blow away this $500 investment. You know, we're talking in a matter of short-term months, let alone the years of benefit on this. But again, they make these short-term decisions that have just rippling impacts across the rest of the teams. And to not get everybody on board with this really, I mean, it is night and day difference in methodologies, being like whether or not you're doing the old school waterfall or you're doing one of the agile methodologies, it's like learning that um, is just pivotal, pivotal to understand uh, what you're doing. And anything short of that, it's like how do you adapt a team to kind of make it more custom fit if you don't know the methodology or what is the best practices or what even are the options out there to adapt for your team? Another piece about Agile that I always get frustrated with is, again, there's there seems to be nobody going into the middle ground of what Agile is intended for when it comes to design. You know, if you've read the Agile Manifesto, it's like it always talks about just enough design. And what that really means is don't spend time on design artifacts that aren't needed by your team. Spend time on the design artifacts that are needed to communicate what is necessary for your team to implement the design. And a lot of engineers struggle with this because there's tends to be in the um, two different camps. There's the camp that, again, they're like, well, everything is still needing the design and they're doing kind of more what, what I call um, segmented waterfall where they're doing all the waterfall designs. It's just they're doing it over cycles and iteration cycles and trying to like adapt it to Scrum, where they have all of these designs, again, that tend to age very poorly. And by the time that you're implementing, you know, they've changed so much and they're no longer applicable. And that's really what, you know, the adaptive design is desi or in place to combat. 
The other side of the camp that actually tends to be more common is the ones that I would call the no designers. And what I mean by a no designer is they're like, well, we don't need any documentation of our design. We're being agile. We're being flexible. We're just, you know, a team of seven people. So everybody can understand the design perfectly. And why, why would we ever need to document it? And that runs into all kinds of different problems. One, it's again, if you go off of the premise that somebody in that team is eventually going to change. When you bring on a new person, onboarding that new person is almost impossible when all you have is the shared knowledge among the seven people. And what you end up having is the onboarding for the new people. It drains everybody on the team because they're answering all these questions that really should be in a design. And, you know, they get frustrated with them. And it, it's just never led to a good situation whenever you have that. And it's really hard to, you know, combat that unless you have you're actively going through that particular piece of the design and, and documenting as you go. The other piece of it is having everybody on your team fully understand the design is just Again, it assumes peerness. It assumes that everybody on your team can equally be as good of a design architect as the person that created the design. And that's just never the case. Um, people have different levels of understanding of it. And so rather than having your architect constantly have to be talking with the team and working that out, um, understanding and capturing that design over the course of you know, pieces helps communicate that design to the rest of the team members without having to spend all of the architect's time going back and forth and, and, and thinking about this. So there really needs to be this balance between where you achieve the design level that you're constantly having to update because it's so complex and so well documented that all the changes can't be captured versus no design where all of it is word of mouth and you can't ever lose anybody on your team or else you lose part of that design knowledge or um, any of those pieces or really you can't expand the team into a bigger application because again it's you have to incorporate in some of these other pieces of the design as you're expanding. And if you're succeeding as a company, you want your team to expand, but not having that well captured over time, it just really hampers you from being able to expand the team and do different endeavors. One other problem with Agile is, again, it's, it's back to this concept of peers and Let's face it, again, if talking about the typical agile team where you have a few more senior people, some more middle grade and some junior people that make up your average team, the whole concept of having everybody be, you know, just other team members is kind of insulting, honestly, to some of the engineers. And everybody is different. Certain people have different motivating factors that motivate them as an engineer, but a lot of it is, you know, engineers still like ladder climbing to some extent. Obviously, we're not managers, so we're not looking to be the, the next CEO. But as you get more senior, you like to have the extra responsibility that comes with being a more senior engineer. This is a desirable characteristic for anybody because you know more, you have more knowledge base, and so you're getting to make more of the technical decisions. You're getting to have more of your voice heard, and it's kind of that reward of uh, moving up in your career. 
And some people don't. I mean, some people get just want to, you know, kind of come in and do their their job. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I respect those people that they are very good at what they do. They have no intention of, of caring about that. And they're perfectly happy being kind of that team level contributor. Um, that is really what I feel agile is moved towards. But for those people that really want to move up, they want to see themselves have growth. They have goals and aspirations and desires, which is where I fall in the camp. Kind of being told um, you're a team member, again, it just has this er, connotation to it that feels more negative. Uh, the perfect example is in my current role, you know, again, we, I had a very small team of people and I was the lead engineer for that team of people. Um, and what ended up happening is we became victims of our own success that we were really good at our product that a larger product wanted to incorporate in our capabilities. And it's like all of a sudden they were using safe. And in this structure, I went from the lead engineer that had total control over all the technical decisions and the lead architect to being just a team member. And I understand why they do that because you shouldn't, you know, you're, you're working with your peers and you should, you know, be not in this competition mentality. You should be more, um, you know, getting along and trying to help everybody else out, um, and really growing as a team. And I'm not saying that's not the case. You should absolutely have that. And one of the people that I, I just can't stand are engineers that are just climbing the ladder for climbing the ladder and have no remorse about putting down a team member, have no remorse for, you know, doing shady pieces just to, to climb the ladder. Like I've run into those people and they just absolutely disgust me. And you know them too, like they're the ones that have to have their opinion stated and are not willing to listen to anybody else or don't even rationalize their own opinions on things because their sole motivation is to climb the ladder. So again, you have those kind of people that you have to deal with, and th but that's not who I'm really talking about into this realm. I'm talking about the engineers that are the ones that always help out the teammates. They're the go-to ones. They're the busiest ones on the team because they're so successful. And again, usually they're, they're very humble about their success, um, and their opinions, but everybody trusts their opinions and they're the go-to person and working a little extra. And we all like to be rewarded for our success. And so again, this is where I struggle in the whole concept of the structure and the flat nature of agile. And so, you know, kind of in our team roles, um, what we've done to help with this is we kind of adopted this tendency of, well, there's actually a few more roles than what are in the base Agile and Scrum team. And one of those is each team has a technical lead. And that technical lead is responsible for making all of the technical decisions for that Agile team. And everything, you know, kind of goes through them. We do, again, we have that more system level focused view where that team, they make decisions and they hear from the technical leads for all the scrum teams to kind of incorporate their technical decisions up. But it gives them this kind of authority piece that is both helpful to the team because, again, it makes better decisions when you have your more senior engineers making these hard technical decisions. It's a better technical decision. 
But two, it makes them feel more involved. It makes them look more appealing. You know, if they ever want to move on to a different job, you know, it's a good resume builder. You know, there's just all of these different benefits for having kind of those more, you know, focused roles. And again, we also have a whole bunch of extra roles built into there um, as well. Like we actually have, you know, um, backups for all of our technical leads. And that's usually more of a junior person that's trying to learn and, you know, more of this embed uh, a mentor kind of mentee mentality into it where you have the, you know, the technical lead and you have the um, backup technical lead that's that junior person that wants to aspire to be that person. Uh, we have, you know, architecture representatives of those teams that have the responsibility of attending, you you know, the architecture meetings. We also implemented, you know, different uh, rotating knowledge-based sharing type things. So we have all the, again, it's it, too long of a list to to cover here, but it's like all of these different pieces that make up the team dynamics and give people more than just the, hey, you know, your only option is to be this team member on the Agile team, and you should be super 100% focused on that and do nothing else outside of that. Um, that is, again, trying to make these people that are very, very effective, but it's a very short-term effective gain versus, you know, having these kind of other tasks that that come into play and help grow your team as a whole um, I feel like makes your team more effective long-term um, versus kind of some of these these short-term goals that are really the focus of a lot of the scrum and these really, really high effective um, agile teams. Let's talk estimation. So another one of my frustrations when it comes to agile is this concept of estimation. Um, I've seen so many different times this concept of estimation trying to be able to make engineers better at predicting. And again, the original premise of Agile, it makes sense. If you have a fixed team and you are estimating story points, again, based off of, you know, the overall difficulty of being able to complete a task, which is easier for people to estimate about. You're then tracking all of your hours and you're pouring that back into and kind of coming up with this velocity number for a fixed team. It makes a lot of sense that you can become way better at estimating over time and you can get a lot of value over putting in those estimates. What I found is that a lot of teams, they again, they want that desirable number and so they try to do the same thing. But it's a lot of overhead um, tracking all of those different pieces. And really, if, again, all of those numbers become invalid the second that you have someone transition off your team, because now you have a new variable. Or in most of the project work that I do, it's like if you have a dedicated team member, that works. But me as the architect, I float between teams. You know, I might one month be 40% on this project and 60% on the other. Actually, two projects would be a dream for me. I usually bounce between five different projects um, because I'm helping all of them out and solving the architecture problems as a whole um, for all of these different teams. But 
it's like, so how do I, my influence and the velocity um, continues to be a variability that isn't trackable? We're spending all this time trying to track these hours and make our, our velocity numbers better and know better. And really, again, we're wasting all this time trying to come up with something that really doesn't have that much impact at the end of the day. Like if you can have those numbers, yeah, it makes you better at estimating. Um, and so you can know how more effective your team can be, uh, again, in that very small setup. But you have a lot of these people arguing for Agile. No, this is a core you know, piece of Agile. And, oh, you have to be getting better at this over time. But I've just never seen those numbers be realistic on the types of teams that I participate in. Um, what we do is, again, I, I think the original concept of using story points and being able to use them to accurately estimate the tasks at that level is helpful because then you can kind of, you know, gauge, hey, we obviously can't do five of the hardest tasks, you know, in a single sprint. That's just never going to be the case um, as you're starting to do the planning. And it affects that piece well. But as far as trying to track, you know, and the hours and rolling that back in, I mean, it just never seems to be it's so much bookkeeping. Like, you know, I even have to do more bookkeeping than I would like to because, you know, each of my projects I'm charging to that. So I have to pay attention to, you know, each of the hours that I give to each individual project. But even that level of tracking it, it's like, well, wait, am I actually working on this task? Or am I going and, you know, answering emails? Or am I answering a question because I have a pop-up phone call for that particular task or any of these pieces? And again, the, the, the Agile team, what they say for that is, oh, just plan for that and have like a 40%, you know, buffer into it um, and try and track it that way. But again, that never seems to be the case because as you know more project like there's always variability that i've found that the hours just don't tell the correct story versus again the the story pointing and kind of sizing of the stories that way always tends to be a better piece of trying to handle this and again but that's just for what works for your team one of my frustrations about estimation and even i've i've been on the the safe forums to represent this same thing it's like they dictate in the literature that they want you to have the same story points across all the different teams so that if they have to reassign something, you know, from one team to another at the solution level, it's like, oh, well, those estimations are still valid. And again, that goes against the very nature of what story pointing was intended for, because, again, they're like, oh, well, we'll let's just say for each two week sprint, eight story points is like one full time person. I'm like, well, then what you're really saying is that eight story points is equivalent to um, 80 hours or they don't even say 80 hours because it's assumed eight days out of the 10 day of the work for that two week sprint, because again, they're giving that overhead of a, uh, a day a week in overhead realm. So really that's, you know, um, uh, 40 minus the third, uh, 64 hours, uh, that you're accounting for in that, 
um, assessment, but it's like you're giving an hour estimation to the story points, which again, that's the whole reason why story points exist is to combat that because engineers are notoriously terrible about picking our estimations. And I will fully admit I am in that realm of, I am absolutely terrible at estimating. And so just the value nature of doing that is always problematic where I see more of the value and where I've come into the experience that helps with it is really understanding at the product level, you know, what a team can handle over time and just being focused on more of the continuous delivery and being more disciplined about, well, Hey, we have to get individual features done. We can't be spread across all these different features so that really the estimation doesn't matter as much. You know, yeah, you have this, you have the stories that are the absolute must have, you know, feature sets into it. And so the only way that to handle those is always give yourself a ton of buffer where, you know, if you have those absolute features in a release and you're on a three-month cycle, then you should be saying that those absolute features make up, you know, a month and a half. If it's any more than that for the critical features, you're doing yourself a insert, uh, you're not doing yourself justice because you're going to be worrying about them. You're going to be tracking all of this um, craziness and you're going to feel like you're behind schedule and it gives just unneeded added stress to the team. So really, as you're kind of doing these these planning, you have those absolute half must features that take up, you know, half of your schedule. The rest of it are kind of the nice to haves like, oh, yeah, it'd be really nice to have that feature into it. But if it doesn't hit, it doesn't hit. And so you start focusing on those absolute haves and then you start into the, you know, the nice to haves. And if you do that, then really doing your overestimation of it again, it's, it's just not adding value. Um, and if you end up having, you know, great, you can bring in these, you know, other things. And again, you can adapt over time, um, as to what features you bring in, but you should always be more considering as you're picking these features of what are the must haves in this release, what aren't the must haves and make your promises and your schedules, um, associated with that rather than spending all of your time focusing on estimations. The last topic that I'll have about Agile has to do with assigning the key roles. I always found that this has been done poorly when you're picking who is going to be, you know, the scrum master and product owner. Um, and again, you know, Kanban works a little bit differently and most of my Agile has been talking to Scrum um, specifically because it's much more popular and much more common than uh, Kanban tends to be. But so you have the role of the Scrum Master and that one honestly is the one that's the most misassigned in my view. The reason is, you know, you hear Scrum Master be described and that description is that they are a servant leader. And a servant leader you know, you think of, oh, well, you want your technical lead to be the scrum master. 
And again, this tends to be the worst thing you can do because as we talked about earlier about wanting that technical lead to actually be a role in the Scrum structure so that they're making the technical decisions, um, what you end up doing is you end up taking your most technically you know, sound person, the most productive member of your team, and sticking them at the role of a Scrum Master because it has the word leader in it. And one of two things has happened in my experience. Number one, the technical lead gets, you know, a boost of responsibility. They're trying to do their technical lead job and they just shortchange the role of scrub master. It's like only taking up 20% of their time. They're not really doing the job effectively. And I can't blame them for doing that because that's not really where you want your technical lead. You want your technical lead to be making the technical decisions and focusing on being the best lead they can versus scrum masters. They're really there to be process, um, you know, watchers. They're there to hold the team accountable for the process. They're there to help keep the team focused and handle impediments that, you know, can slow the team down. That's, that's what they're there for. Um, and really that's not what a technical leads job is. So what I've actually found is it's almost better to find somebody that's more junior or even mid, you know, mid grade, but junior actually tends to be the best where they fill that role. And so it helps them kind of, you know, facilitate the process a little bit better and get to know different aspects of the software development process and gives them more exposure than they would be if they were just, you know, participating as a team member. But it offloads those responsibilities from the, you know, more senior technical people. And again, if the more senior technical person wants to be the scrub master and they're all very gung-ho about it, I'm not saying that you can't make them that. I'm just saying that is the role that, they always seem to get dumped on them. And if that's the case, again, they're not able to really do their job effectively and they shortchange it. Uh, I, I mentioned that there's two situations. The other situation I've seen is that they are gung-ho about being in that role. So they focus in on it and they do that role really, really well. But what happens is the tech, you know, the skill of the team drops because they're missing their technical lead. And so they actually tend to suffer a lot more with the more dedicated person in that role than they would be in the case of them kind of more shortchanging the scrum master role. So when you're picking your scrum master, again, really focus on who is the best role to do that. And honestly, too, I find um, when I'm building a new scrum team, the most effective scrum master is actually someone to bring in from the outside. And if you have that as an um, you know, an option that you can just bring in someone to be a scrum master. That's great. Um, and it tends to go really, really well because again, they can focus on that piece and they're not drawn to focusing, um, on more of the technical role. I'm not saying that I don't want that person to be non-technical at all, because again, a scrum master role, especially on a more seasoned scrum team, isn't really a full-time job. But I want that person to be able to focus into that role and do that role well. The other role, you know, is the product owner. And again, this is one role that I continue to see misassigned. Um, sometimes what you'll see is you'll see domain SMEs pick up the product owner role. 
And again, it's that's better than assigning your tech lead the scrum master role because a product owner can, you know, needs to interact with the SME and having the more knowledge, the better. But what it tends to be is the SME needs to, again, be the SME. And so you're having the product owner responsibilities tend to get shortchanged when you're assigning that role to a SME. Um, I've also seen that be assigned to a person that's a lot more technical, that's not really good at interacting with users or interacting with the SMEs or anybody else that needs to be a stakeholder into the mix to get the best vision of the product. Um, again, they're just putting them in there because um, they know how to write user stories. And again, that's the least, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that good user stories isn't important. I'm just saying representing the product is way more important than being able to write good user stories. And again, when you have a SME in that role, what tends to happen is actually the user stories are way more um, product-based and at the high level versus a encapsulation of what the team needs in order to achieve that product vision. So having, having, again, that SME in that role, it can be helpful and it's tempting to put that, but you almost need that layer of separation where you're like, well, I understand that's what you want to do. Let me work with the team to make sure that we can build that as a product and kind of be more of that go-between. Um, I've tended to find that to fill that role, um, either a system engineer, um, is really good at that role. Um, not all of them, but again, um, that tends to be the case or just somebody honestly, that's not really that software, um, specific tends to fill that role really, really well, um, because they're not bogged down by that, but they have to have at least enough technical understanding to interact with the teams. Um, so again, I'm, I'm saying that role is another one where hiring an external person um, to come in for that very role um, tends to go well. Um, or again, if you have an internal person that's used to being that role, that's great. And again, a product owner tends to, over time, uh, not be as full-time of a role and so what we've actually found is, okay, well, if a product owner in a team is starting to not need as much of their time, what you can do is you can have a product owner share different sized products um, and help out other teams depending on the size and, you know, the other pieces there, um, but kind of have them be that more responsible um, is what we found engages them more versus trying to have the product owner wear another cap um, and be like, oh, now you've become the SME. Like then again, they tend to gravitate towards that role versus being effective in the product owner role. I hope all of you enjoyed listening to my podcast today. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments on uh, any of the topics that I covered in this episode. I'm going to try to do about one episode a week and uh, see how it goes. Uh, look forward to having you listen to me in the future.